Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension, and welcome to the Great Show in the Galaxy. I'm Emma. He's Mike, and today we've got some guests joining us because we have a chat about he who is Moth, the Great One, um, in some people's opinion, anyway. Uh, but so, what we're <laughs> going to do first is uh, we're going to have one episode uh, covering his uh, early career and his pre-showrunner who work, and then there will be another episode uh, which will cover his time as showrunner. So today helping us out with part one is Shane and Jonathan from the Greatest Events in Sporting History. Hello. Hello. Okay, lads. So uh, we've got a bit to cover, um, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, because uh, although Moff is not, the, you know, we wouldn't call him like the world's most prolific producer, he's put some, he's certainly put down some videotape over the years. So mm. um, uh, I, I'm not sure we're going to cover every single bit of his pre-Who stuff because uh, I'm going to hold my hands up and say I didn't watch a lot of Press Gang. No, 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 no. <laughs> A little bit, I, but not much. I mean, I will, I will. The only thing to say about Press Gang, because it'll probably feed into what you lot will be talking about on your second show, is um, he, by, I don't know about popular consensus, but he's regarded as probably creating one of the most kind of iconic t- women's TV characters of that era mm. in terms of its lead character. Because basically, Press Gang is a show that he created about a high school newspaper was it or was it college newspaper uh, i've always thought of he's like a young person's newspaper yeah yeah a newspaper for young people um and the person in charge of the newspaper was a character called linda days played by julia sawala who i think american viewers probably know best from absolutely fa- fabulous she was saffron mm-hmm. yeah um jennifer saunders daughter and that was regarded as quite a a forward um forward's not the right word but something of almost a load star for depictions of women at, at that time i mean this press gang is what 90s uh started in late, 18, maybe 18, late 80s 89 to 93 yeah so late 80s and 90s so for the time it was regarded as a real touchstone for women characters mm-hmm. in fiction yeah um and the irony almost between how often he gets criticised, and that I'm not saying that criticism is valid, but the criticism for some of his depictions of women now, and you wouldn't have thought someone with that profile would have created a character like Linda Day back then. Hmm. Oh, okay, that's a that's a, a really good point actually, because <laughs> um, if if something that me and Mike have sort of criticised Moffat for is uh, how. Um, I think maybe falling prey to cliche with how women are portrayed in who, especially in his later years. And, uh, some of the more unfortunate comments he's given in interviews, uh, yeah. before. Yeah. I, my, my, I have a theory for that, but that was kind of linked into coupling, which I'm, did you like want to talk about coupling as well? Which was well, yeah, I mean, thing. we'll, 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 we'll just, yeah, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. I think so is coupling the next, um, Project next, next in his resume it was a series called Joking Apart, um, which is very much like built around um, the divorce of from him from his first wife, uh, and um, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember like how it's sort of like it's sort of semi autobiographical, um, right? And it was about um, it had this sort of like, strange like structure to it as I remember. 
Um, I didn't watch much of it myself, but reading up on the Wikipedia, um, it has um, the lead actor, uh, who's a sitcom writer, uh, apparently like performing stand-up in a small like comedy club. Um, and that's sort of like when I was reading about it, that sort of like it's like triggered him like a memory. Uh, so it's like I, I sort of seem to remember that element, which he always thought was a bit odd. Um, going back to it, he sort of like disavowed it um, most recently, but. Um, <sighs> Like there's this comedy performance which is usually sort of like open like the the line my wife left me and things like that because this is, this is again um, when he and his first wife were going through a divorce because of um, what happened with uh, when he was creating press gang uh, and then uh, it actually uh, coupling didn't uh, come until after a show called Chalk uh, which was set in a comprehensive yeah. school yeah terrible terrible <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, like I, I've never seen Joking Apart, but you know, if people are listening and they're like, "Oh, I might check some of these old shows out," I wonder if they're on YouTube or Netflix. Don't check out Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, did, I think didn't like the BBC like pitch it as sort of like they tried to compare it to Faulty Towers or something. Yeah, that to be fair, that didn't help. That no. that's not the fault of Moffat or any of the people wow. behind it. That it got yeah. no, it got a big buzz before it got mm-hmm. aired when you aired it and you're yeah, you're putting the same name as 40 towers and then it's like you see it and it's not not even in in the tone so it was just a ridiculous comparison anyway not <laughs> even in terms of quality just in terms of tone it's nothing like it's, yeah it's nothing like 40 towers so hmm. it is the yeah i mean you're, you're you're kind of starting um behind you're you're kind of starting behind par already you know, hmm. it's like this great, this great new quarterback. He's going to be as good as Joe Montana, and you realize, <laughs> and that's just like, well, that's not a fair comparison to give anyone. <laughs> Poor yeah. Jimmy Garoppolo. Anyway, th- that, we'll leave that for the NFL podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was '97. So coupling um, first was shown on BBC Two in 2000, and um, you know, for, for those of the uh, you who don't live in the UK, it's pretty much the story of. It was his... quite. It, it did all right elsewhere. Yeah. It did all right abroad. Well, there America, are there a couple in America US? remade it, didn't they? Yeah, 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 yeah they did. Yeah, anyway. but it's, yeah, it's and it one failed. of those. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that, like, not commonplace, but people who tend to watch a lot of TV abroad have seen coupling and hmm. tend to actually quite like it. Do you know what? I don't think I've seen it since broadcast. Just to, yeah, you just... know, be completely open about it. I, I'm sure it's somewhat dated now, but. I think maybe had yeah. like lots of I shows mean, from that time. Friends, yeah, 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 yeah. I think a lot of people are finding that out now. It's back on Netflix. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, we did it at the time. I remember because basically the premise is I want to say like three couples. I want to say dramedy. Uh, um, no, it's a sitcom. No, Coupling's a sitcom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, that's Moffat's general background before Doctor Who. It's sitcom. It's sitcom writing. Mm. It's. No, it's so much. It's not so much in the drama area. I mean, Press Gang was a youth show, but it, Press Gang wasn't a sitcom, but it was definitely intended to be funny in parts. And everything else is, that Mike's just listed, this is all sitcom. Like mm. down mm. the line, um, well, not generic terms of quality, but you would not market it as anything else other than a sitcom. Yeah. Fair enough. Now I'll just. Um... Just thinking back on, I think the things that sort of stick, I mean, it has got some very memorable moments in it, even though I'm sure it has, uh, I think it, it may be probably because it, I, I mean, I would have been 17 in 2000 or so, Mike. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was kind of like, you know, a proper, like an adult, like you say, sitcom mm, to watch because having adult themes. 
I would have been 14, 15, so to a 14, 15-year-old mm. boy, Jeff was probably the funniest thing that ever existed <laughs> yeah. on television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not lying about it probably being a bit dated now. I'm just looking at the title card on uh, Wikipedia. It's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he didn't really get into sort of like drama properly until you get to Jekyll. Yeah, I mean, before we get to Jekyll, yeah, is that um, a thing to bring it back to my initial point about there's a uh, the notion around how he writes how he writes women is that and mm-hmm. this comes this did come through quite a bit in coupling um mm-hmm. i mean i i was i i'm quite ambivalent about the show i think the only reason it's watchable is because they cast it really well just look mm-hmm. at the look at the actors in it yeah and there's a lot of very good actors and a lot of them have actually gone into to do drama rather than rather than comedy but through that and it's yeah it's kind of common knowledge it's not a massive secret he went for a divorce and apparently his wife was unfaithful to him um and apparently the guy who the other guy um Mm -hmm. because this happened while he was writing press gang he created a character with that guy's name in press gang just for horrible things to happen to him oh yeah yeah i think like like his very first episode that that character appeared he got like a typewriter dropped on his foot or something Mm, yeah (laughs) um but all of a sudden now, when you think of, you know, when you talk about the, the depiction of Linda Day and then a lot of other women characters, they now start to become puzzles to be solved. Mm. And a lot of, I don't understand women. Um, you know, who can decode these mysterious creatures, which we can you can say the rest of that conversation for your next episode. <laughs> but if you want to trace it back, that's probably where the, mm. where the uh, cause was. No, it's and a change in mentality. Any, yeah, and that's not judging anyone. In the, I don't know the specifics of the of the marriage divorces happen it's, it's painful sympathy to all people involved um but that's probably in terms of to figure out was there a change that's maybe where the change started hmm. and then yeah to jekyll yeah was well, so i remember that jekyll was a <clears throat> a pretty big deal when it came out because um hmm. <clears throat> so when did that air mike just uh that would just have remind been me 2007 this well, really was later what... than I thought. Yeah. No, no, that's that's about right. And this is really bef- where he was trying to do what he ended up doing with Sherlock. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So like the, the modern take... twist on the the classic tale. He's exactly, exactly on, on a genre fiction story. Um, yeah. But yeah, completely up to date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you feel like um, this was kind of always he was kind of doing sitcom and stuff like that with the hopes that one day he would kind of get his shot at doing. Uh, the genre piece he'd always wanted to do um i don't i don't know i mean i'm sure there was always the ambition to do something like this or i mean mm. doctor who is still well, doctor's not back yet is it yeah it's just come, is it just come back mm-hmm. this I'm be th- th- it'll be it's on its third series by now oh no my bad you're right because it's 2005 yeah. um yeah i mean who knows when you start writing it mm. but um uh, and I'm just trying to get my train of thought. Um, so what was the point you just made, Emma? I was, what I was saying was, do you feel like um, he was always yes, waiting yes. to do... Sorry, waiting to do this. Yes, sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure like he was ambitious <laughs> to do something like this, or, or Doctor Who, or Sherlock, or apparently Dracula, which is what he's, which he's got coming up next. But I don't, I mean, I don't know. None of us know him. This is just, we're making... Um, analysis based on very limited information so on this limited information i don't think it was i don't really want to do these sitcoms but i'll do them because maybe I, that helped me get my foot in the door mm. i think i'm sure it's a case of you know he's a writer 
you know, writers yeah. have lots. Writers, most writers, don't tend to have just one idea. Yeah. And normally, you... like, like you know, at the moment of recording, Black Panther came out a few days ago. Yeah. yeah. While Ryan Coogler was probably on the set, he's already thinking of his next two things. I know he's he's already kind of working. Or Greta Gerwig, who just made Lady Bird. Mm. I listened to, I just listened to an interview that she did about a couple of months ago, where she said, "Yeah, I'm currently writing the next thing." So that's probably where her. I mean, she if you watch her and what she's is she at a BAFTA tonight? She probably is. That's all people are asking her about. But in her mind, she's already thinking of whatever the next story is. Hmm. I think mm. you sort of like have to when you're a writer because you, you don't you never really know what's gonna stick the landing on what's gonna like bomb horribly. So you kind of have to just like keep going no matter what, and then just hope that whatever you produce, you know, strikes a chord with people. Case in point, case in point, in Jekyll. Because if you yeah. because ultimately the second that thing is now on TV, you are now unemployed. Hmm. Unless yeah, you've already yeah. been guaranteed a second series or third series, now you are unemployed. So, yeah, that just yeah underscores your point. Mm. No, I think that's fair. No, I, I um, no, it's just you always. I always sort of have visions of uh, you know people who are like big actors, but they don't really want to be big actors at all. What they want to do is, uh, you know, like Harrison Ford just really wants to just do cabinetry and be miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Five he doesn't planes. really want to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Or you know your man who who was in Blur, all he wants to do is make cheese. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, you always get sort of the feet because I'm so I so in my mind, even though you know I watched Cutplane growing up and mm-hmm. I watched Jekyll when it was on. Um, I always have the and I, you know I knew about Pressgate. I because Moffat is such associated with genre telly to mm. me. Uh, it always sort of makes me think that the sitcom stuff is like th- from the before times, even though he spent m- much more time doing light entertainment and sitcom and stuff before he ended up doing the genre stuff, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's a case of both. Um, mm. I've, I've no doubt that the, these genre fiction ideas he had going on in his brain for a, a good while before we saw him. Um, mm. I can't imagine that's the only thing that he had in his head or even you know writing series to a coupling and i don't really want to be doing this this is just money for a rope i actually want to be i you know i think it's a case of multiple things i mean remember he mm. wrote a script well it was a draft in the end but he wrote a script for what spielberg's animated tintin movie oh yeah that's right yeah yeah and, yeah. and then he had to back away from it he's always said for years he wants to do a, he wants to do a james bond film wow <laughs> <laughs> now that's a misogynist I can get behind. He says. Yeah. <laughs> he's always said he, he's always said he wanted to write a Bond film. So I'm sure there are, you know, on a file somewhere, on a Dropbox file somewhere. Mm. Um, it's not an invitation for Russian hackers, but there is a file somewhere that has, at very least, notes, if not dialogue, and plot points. Mm. Mm. That's true, actually. So I mean. Uh, did people, what, anyone else watch Jekyll at the time? So I remember watching it at the time, time. And, uh, not, yeah. not time, but I, I, I have some big recollections of it. Uh, mm. Nesbit playing it up very, very, very to the max. Yeah. Almost channeling Nicolas Cage from. <laughs> from yeah, it was very hit or miss for me, so. Mm. Um, I, I do remember Mark Gatiss was in it. Because um, wasn't there like a. This was like a flashback or something to like the actual period of like the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because like, in this series, um, uh, James Nesbitt plays um, like Tom Jackman or something. I think his character yeah, like, was. Yeah, like yeah, he's, not, he's not called Jekyll, but yeah, and, um, or anything like that. But it, and I don't know what they call the 
condition like he doesn't take a potion i don't i don't think no no no, no. no yeah but the, but but they're in a world where the notion of dr jekyll as an idea like the world now exists mm-hmm. yeah um and what, what actually it's funny when you mentioned like the potion um the the bit i was thinking of with mark gators was like um flashback so it's um i'm trying to, i don't I can't remember who uh actually play who actually played i think it was sort of like, um like i think mark gators was uh robert louis stevenson or something uh like as like, actually in character as the writer and talking with dr jekyll so like, this like creating like a sort of a fictionalized version of the like the idea of the throwback and i think there's a bit where he writes on a bit of paper and he hands it to Dr. Jekyll and it says, there is no potion. It was the woman or something, which really sort of like sticks out to me now, especially when you like considering Moffat. Mm. Um, that bit really, really stuck out to me. Um, but it's sort of, yeah, Jekyll, I do remember like bits of it. I do remember sort of like, the prosthetics and like the makeup they did on um, uh, James Nesbitt, like transforming him into Hyde. Um, it's not like, like radically different from his his regular but you can like tell it's like he looks a bit more gaunt he's got like the black eyes and like sometimes when he smiles he's got like fangs and things like that so yeah um but the problem really, was it was miscast mm, it was miscast. Mm. that's the problem with it it was a casting yeah better casting it's a better show and maybe it doesn't get cancer after one season oh there you go <laughs> matt matt gators play, actually played robert lewis stevenson ah, i thought i thought so <laughs> I, I, I don't know what what out of all of that that was the bit that stuck in my mind the most. I don't. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, the, the notion the notion of the woman also come through very strongly in Sherlock. Sherlock yeah. Um, in, think, a, in in series two, of Sherlock. Yeah, I think that's uh, something we'll get onto in our next episode. So um, yeah. For now, though, we do have to crack onto the the meat of uh, this episode. So in 1999, this little thing called Comic Relief. You might have heard of it. Um, put out uh, a four-part little thing called Doctor Who and the Curse of Fatal Death. Um, indeed, Eve, yes. <laughs> indeed. I mean, we, we've talked about it um, at length on our charity special show, Emma. Um, mm-hmm. So, lads, did you, like, watch Curse of Fatal Death when it first went out? And No. No. I wasn't even aware of it. Uh, yeah, the only charity I I, Doctor yeah, Who I, I can think of is when he turned up on EastEnders. Oh. <laughs> oh, please don't talk about that. Oh, no, I'm not going through that again. I'm going to my safe place. I'm going to my safe place. I don't even know what this what the thing is that you're talking about. I don't really watch. I don't watch his telephones. Oh, this was <laughs> Dimensions in Time from 1993. It's bloody awful. Oh, it's the worst thing ever. Oh, yeah, it was 93. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I probably remember Vince Seven. And didn't have Does a vote. You're pretty cognizant. On... Yeah, they, they had a vote on which character should save the Doctor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think like both the options, like they're no longer part of the show. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going on what you lot are saying about this, and to an extent, Curse of Fatal Death. You have this is a time when Doctor Who is a punchline. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I still yeah. sometimes struggle to comprehend the fact that Doctor Who is on television and is a mainstream television program. And it's yep. broadly, broadly speaking, a success because <laughs> even now there are elements of it that are a punchline with much of the British public. And at that time, it was it was a punchline. Mm. It was a it was a um, shorthand for r- just ridiculous, silly television. 
it was, and cheapness it, and things yeah, like and, that. Especially, yeah, and, yeah, and cheapness. It was just it was just like absurd that such a thing ever existed. It was something you would laugh at. Yeah, I mean, like still to this day, you can still get like greetings cards where it's like I think it's like a cartoon out of a newspaper or something but it's got like Daleks at the bottom of a flight of stairs and they're going well bugger that uh, buggers up our plan to conquer the universe (laughs) and when that hasn't like it's been a part of the Daleks features for like years now (laughs) you know they've been managed to like navigate stairs but you're right it's still sometimes like a complete punchline yeah Doctor Mm. Who to Doctor Who when it was off and still now to people that don't watch it the Mm. show is a joke the show is a joke Let's, let's call it what it is. The show is still to people who aren't fans and don't watch it. The show is a joke. It's inherently absurd and laughable. Hmm. Um, th- that's, I mean, that tone comes, sounds like it was pretty much a case of dimensions of time from what you're saying. And, and also in Curse of the Fatal Death, even though it was written by someone who doesn't think it's a joke and has a deep, deep love of the program. Hmm. I think um, Curse of Fatal Death worked because, like, Moffat does, like, poke fun at the usual sort of tropes of Doctor Who, like, I'll explain later, or, you know, the Master, who, you know, at the time was still fresh in our minds as being played by Anthony Ainley. It was just, like, being camp as hell. I mean, I mean, you can't even, like, top Jonathan Price's performance. You mm. know, I think if you'd got him and John Sim and Michelle Gomez in the same, like, closing two parts of uh, series 10 i think it probably would collapse in upon itself well, it would have collapsed in itself to make curse of fatal death canonical yes. because the doctor re- regenerates into a to woman the end, to, well into a woman and also yeah. to the end of the regeneration cycle then so yeah. please don't put jonathan price in it because i cannot deal with that amount of arguments um <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah but i think it's an affectionate parody it's probably yeah. one of the better, better yeah. ones and yeah um, Moffat, I mean, Moffat understood the reason why it had to be because no one would have accepted something like a time crash or one of the other kind of little almost Doctor Who mini with these charity telethons. Mm-hmm. At that time, no audience, no audience would have accepted that. Yeah. You had to do it the way that Curse of Fatal Death was. And and I think, I mean, I'm, I just want to be clear that I'm not criticizing it as a negative. I think it was actually given the parameters Moffat had to work with. I think he did a really good job of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is, it's, it is genuinely enjoyable as long as, you know, you you don't get so precious about him maybe making fun of it at times. Mm. Because also you have to know the audience that he's writing for at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so then 2005 rolls around. Doctor Who uh, has its resurgence in the hands of Russell T. Davies. And for its very first season, Stephen Moffat wrote The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. Well, just immediately hit with some of the best, some of the <laughs> still holds up some of the best episodes of. Mm. I mean, this is kind of what's so weird, I think, about how getting to the fundamental point of what these two shows are going to be. Uh, spoiler alert in that <laughs> Moff sort of as 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 sort of uh, a writer of individual episodes has produced some of the most beloved episodes of the revival. <laughs> hmm. And now how I think a lot of people feel about him uh, having uh, come to the end of his show time as a showrunner when he was has written a lot more episodes. Um, so I think obviously there's going to be a bit of familiarity bleed, breeding contempt and uh, obviously be only able to only having to work on an episode in isolation obviously is a lot less stressful than trying to run a show and write five of them. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and thematically, well, you, as, no, you're not, you're not, well, writing, can... you're not writing five, you're writing 13. You're writing True. 13 because yeah. you're actually yeah. co-writing every other episode, even if you don't take a credit. Mm. 
But, and these, all of his, as a generally speaking, all of his, because uh, I've just watched them all over the last two days, um, <laughs> they're all kind of like the more horror-based episodes, whereas when you're showrunner, you can't have 13 horror-based episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it gets to be a bit intense. <laughs> Would be a bit intense. I mean, I'm, you know, we, we, I'd probably enjoy it, but uh, yeah, I don't think anyone yeah. else would. Um, but uh, yeah, so the end of Child Doctor's Answers. I remember have, obviously watching watching the revival. And I remember watching sort of getting to Dalek and thinking once once I saw Dalek, Dalek, I thought, okay, this is going to work. We're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so the rest of the series sort of proceeds on, and then we get to the Empty Child, and I think that was like my first kind of real like, holy shit, this is. Mm. This this is this is really actually really good. If you see what I mean. Um, having obviously rewatched it, I guess we've all re- rewatched them recently. If it was made now, in the where Doctor is right now, I don't think this two part would as well as it was at the time. I think the main issue, partly one thing you notice between just that first series and now the production values are so much better oh, now yeah oh yeah, god yeah, yeah yeah i mean so the graphics much better hold up. <laughs> yeah like I mean, yeah i mean definitely the effects and visually but also even in terms of the the editing there is and this so not to single these two episodes out this is the whole series mm-hmm. there are bits where a character says a line and then the camera just lingers on him for like an extra second and a half you like now that's where you cut yeah. you cut to the next character who then talks and then you cut again then you cut again because at times, um, it just quicken, quickens the pacing up. It's like when you, ed- you know, when we edit a podcast, you times we'll just take out silences. Because yeah. Wait, we're supposed it, to edit it these? Ruins the list. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so, even though yeah. I don't think anyone bothers. But um, it's a case of where you have to, you know, you have to, to help the general experience for the listener. By the same token, how you edit um, a episode of television. Particularly... Mm. One that in, in you know incorporates large parts of action in it. Mm. It is incumbent that your edit your editing is quite uh, slick and crisp, and it doesn't linger too long unless you're unless it's you know Chekhov's gun and you're lingering for a reason. Mm. And in addition, the style of the acting. The and I I get this by the way. This is still the show's still figuring itself out, figuring figuring out what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. But some of the actors, particularly the supporting actors, so not so much Eccleston and. Billy Piper, who I don't know what point this was in the filming, but they've been doing this for a little bit. They're probably fig- and they've had rehearsals. They're probably figuring or have largely figured out their characters and what the show is. Mm. A lot of the other supporting characters haven't figured out what the show is, so it comes off as as soap opera, EastEnders, Emmerdale, Coronation Street style acting, mm. because they they're, they're just remembering their lines and then just reading them, mm. rather than actually being part of the of the world that's being created and partly because no one's really familiar and anyone look most people acting in the program at this point even if they were alive when the show was on may not have strong memories of it hmm. so there's so there's still a bit of trial and error in terms of the acting choices people make mm. at times it's it's the prototype and a new invention it's you know it's the first it's the first ipod compared to where the ipod is at now uh, or like iron man suit it's in the movie mm. you see i big clunky <laughs> pondering like gleaming silver suit and after he works in it a bit more he kind of refines it and makes it into the red and gold that everyone knows mm-hmm. but you but you need but you need to do the first thing before you can get to yeah you can get to the next thing this in terms of production values and acting choices yeah. this is they're still figuring out what the sh- and this obviously 
is largely Davis because this is Dave, on Davis's watch. Mm-hmm. You know, Moffat wrote the episode, gave it to Davis, and then probably had nothing little else to do with it after that. Yeah. So they're still figuring out what they want the show to be yeah. at this point. Um, so you watch it now and you do it. I think we watch it recalibrating our minds to, well, you know, we, we know the show is still figuring itself out, so we let that stuff go. Where if if, if that you've transplanted that episode into like the next series, people would be like, oh, all the old, the old um, side swipes about it being cheap and amateurish hmm. would come out, which isn't the fault of anyone. It's more just a look how the show has changed. Yeah, it's also a good bit of Captain Jack and Doctor Dances. But one Captain Jack makes a joke about visiting Pompeii during Volcano Day. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, keep, that, Cap- keep that in mind, spoilers. While meanwhile, yeah. <laughs> speaking of Captain Jack, uh, this is obviously the first time we introduced. So, is Captain Jack a Moffat character that then no. was carried on, or was Russell T Davis implanted him in? Yeah, I think Russell T Davis conceived of the character. I don't think it was. He's a Moffat creation um, because I would have imagined if he had created him you'd think that like any time you appeared after that that wasn't written by Moffat it would have like a credit like Jack Harkness created by Stephen Moffat I would imagine because he usually do that with like the Daleks and that um, yeah. I'm just trying to look it up real quick I th- I'm fairly certain he was created by I mean it makes sense if he yeah. was created by yeah I was going to say he yeah, is, a, he is yeah. an RTD uh, creation yeah, as far yeah, as yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 Um, I think the thing that stands out most to, you know, looking over the, the whole, just looking at the whole spectrum, this episode, it sort of really highlights his, his kind of eye and um, kind of freakily accurate ability to pick out really ordinary things which are incredibly frightening. Yeah. Yep. Or <laughs> children in, well, people in gas masks, mm. as we've all seen that photograph. Yep. Of all the people on the street and with the gas masks on, yep. including horses. Yep. <laughs> yep. And have you seen the baby ones? The oh, um, yeah, yeah, they're oh, weird. Shit. I mean, yeah, I, yeah I, I still remember the part from um, Doctor Dancers where they're in like the hospital um, and they they play back this like recording of um, the um, the the interview with yeah the, the interview yeah child. yeah and it's not until. You, you sort of like hear the, the child saying, "Are oh, you my mummy?" over and over, and you just you stay and still think it's the, the tape. Um, but then there's a sort of this little sort of spinning sound, and sort of like Rose goes, "What's that?" And it went, and the doctor goes, "The tape ran out while we've been talking. <laughs> you know, we sent it to his room. This is its room, <laughs> and it's just like, oh shit, you know." <laughs> yeah, I will say that I was legitimately freaked out by that but i must say i have told this story a couple of times before but i was extremely drunk the first time i saw this episode <laughs> and i couldn't deal with it and i had to go to bed so <laughs> yeah it is the proper creep factor hmm. um but also i assume jack is the first queer openly queer character in doctor who's history as well yeah i, believe... yes, I know i do quite yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, I you, I was... know, you can infer it with some characters but i think this is one where it's just like well, yeah, out and proud, really. I, yeah, I mean the first, the first part you see him is when he's uh, basically making comments about um, Rose's bum, and then the guy gets jealous, so he slaps his bum as well. It's like, oh, that's Captain Jack. Yeah. And I remember this character. I remember where this character goes. Mm. I hate him. <laughs> 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 I know it's this like big massive oh representation on a, a, a children's television show, but ah oh, no. Uh, and the less said about 
the stupid Torchwood Finn. He dives into a woman's vagina at the end, or whatever it was. <laughs> oh, God, Derek. Oh. <laughs> oh. So much PTSD right now. Mm. <laughs> um, but, the, but yeah. yeah. The other notable thing, about, of course, about the Dr. Dancers is it um, brings back one of... Um, it's kind of doesn't really happen as much during his time as a show necessarily, but the sort of the everybody lives ending. Um, mm. That might be one of the most important things that happens in that series in terms of the overall direction of the character, mm. because he says in that climactic moment, like he doesn't know if this plan has worked, mm. if he saved everyone, and he says, "Please give me this." He says, "I yeah. need," it. and at the end, he says, "I need more days like this," because mm-hmm. this is a when we're talking about PTSD, this is a doctor who's still incredibly traumatized and in a very dark place yeah. after events mm-hmm. of the time. And this is almost the path to recovery that ends up with him becoming David Tennant's doctor. Mm. Like, I, I don't know how much of this was planned and how much of it was just serendipitous, but this is when you look at the overall path of the doctor from the episode roles to, let's say, New Earth. Mm-hmm. This is, this um, is, this might be the most important thing, if if not maybe defensive dialect, that happens to Eccleston's doctor in mm. terms of his own healing process. Mm. No, I think that's very that's very true. Um, I don't know what I like to say. I think that's the the thing about Moffat. He just has this this way it, when it comes to Doctor Who. This way of kind of things that are in his shows, even before he was the showrunner these little things that sort of have these big ripples later on that other other writers are picking up on or RTD was encouraging him to put in um, that, I mean, cause nearly all the rest of his episodes are sort of before he was showrunner are like this too, mm. that the big or little things that end up having massive consequences for the doctor, even though he's just sort of so tuned into kind of, all his materials that they get obviously give you while you're preparing to write this. And then just the, the voice of the doctor almost and his ability to just sort of lay in little threads that people have sort of got, get enthusiastic about and pick up on. Mm-hmm. And maybe his greatest contribution. Well, again, he's someone who, I mean, I don't know if, again, I mean, we don't know how much he's planning Mm. to write Doctor Who but there's no doubt the ambition have been there for years so these are all of the mm. things he's probably wanted to do and the things that Davis was happy for him to include he would include because um, mm. Davis can always say yeah we're getting rid of that or this doesn't fit or this is completely in Congress with the rest of the series so nice idea in isolation but we can't have that mm. so um, and it seems that in terms of the relationship Davis had with his writers his relationship with Moffat was among the closest mm. yeah I don't think they'd ever worked together before, but it seemed that he was a, a very trusted lieutenant um, to Davis's general. Yeah. So that's so that's always that's always it. And and thing is about Moffat, and I'm sure you'll talk about this more in the next episode. But Moffat doesn't write small ideas, whether you like them or not. He doesn't. He never writes small ideas. They're always mm. sometimes too big for the canvas he wants to paint on. <laughs> but they're always big and large and and vast and and outsized and inherently then influential hmm. so it's it's natural that just bakes into them there's stuff that if you want to pick it up and use it again further down the line it's quite easy to do so yeah 
Um, okay, so then Christopher Eccleston leaves and David Tennant comes in. Uh, Stephen Moffat returns to the show in 2006. <coughs> Bless you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. I couldn't hold it. It's all right. <laughs> With the girl in the fireplace. Oh man, I remember because I remember what, the first. I remember the first time I watched it. So on broadcast day, mm-hmm. remember watching it, and it was one of those things of like I, 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 I was like, I'm not getting it. I'm not quite. I mean, because I remember enjoying it, but why is it? Why is this story like it is? And that final reveal of what the, the ship and the name of the ship is. Mm. I was like, ah, yeah. the scales falling from my eyes. <laughs> I just thought, oh, he, he's clever, and he. There's, there's people who, and it happens with movies as well, that sometimes you know you're coming to the last scene. Yeah. You know, they're fading to black, and same with TV. And already, without realising, you mentally switch stuff. So if there's something right at the end, you will miss it. And the shot in question you're referring to, that final shot, it's not like a tight close-up. Mm. So you actually do need to... And even the the font of the lettering, it's like dark lettering on a dark yeah. background, which that's <laughs> just actually bad production. That's not Muffet's fault. That's just poor production. So... If you're not paying attention, yeah, you will totally miss the reason why the events of the episode happen the way they do. Because, yeah, you need that one shot for it all to make sense. Mm. Yeah. But I, I remember sort of, because obviously I think it was a thing of people, like when, when that episode was, we knew it was coming and we knew who was writing it. Because mm-hmm. I, I just want to, you know, throw in the back, way back when this, this was uh, going, these were going out live. Uh, you always used to look forward to the Moffat episode. Because yeah. it's like, okay, this is gonna be this is gonna be a special one. And I think Girl in the Fireplace I mean still I think I think ranks up there. Mm-hmm. Um so I think you could probably say sorry, say similar things about the effects. I mean the thing of the horse coming through the mirror and stuff. Yeah. I think that maybe doesn't look as good as it did uh back then. Um but uh, I mean just just fundamentally how the story works and how it's structured it's it's such a clever idea. I just I still think it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, what Russell T Davis basically said: do something in eighteenth century with clockwork bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> so Moffat went, well, I will actually go to the fifty first century and have a time traveling clockwork bad guy. Mm. But it seems when you see him start playing around with time more, because yeah. mm. in Empty Child and Doctor Dances, it's a linear story, and this is him starting to play around with the time which is one in your next episode you'll cover but yeah mm. people get very annoyed about but here yeah uh, it's it's it was a, and then in terms of plot it's actually circular that's what Moffat does he yeah. writes circular writes circular episodes that mm-hmm. see don't seem you don't seem to know it's like you're walking you don't know where you're going and then all of a sudden you reach the destination like oh, all right now i know where i am um but you don't know where you're going until you um, hit your destination. It's it's like going on a long drive, kind of without satnav. Mm. And this episode, in many ways, is a t- is a test run for the dynamic that he would create with Matt Smith's Doctor and Amy. This episode, it's yeah. Yeah. it's a, it's a story of mm. a young girl of a young girl who has a chance meeting with a doctor, and that ends up influencing the rest of her life, all the way through to adulthood. Yeah, and and Moffat seemed a lot less interested in the dynamic between Rose and the Doctor than RTD did. He Rose is largely sidelined. Um yeah. I mean mm-hmm. Mickey's in this episode and Rose is treated the way Mickey's normally treated. Like and I cannot believe that if he'd have and obviously it resolves itself, but I cannot believe that Davis would have had the Doctor basically choose to abandon Rose at the end the way he did. He he I mean it's it's not a 
easy decision for him to make, but he chooses to leave, ultimately leave Rose and Mickey stranded in the 51st century. So he doesn't just sacrifice, he doesn't just sacrifice his link with the TARDIS and says, right, in the 19th century forever. Um, and maybe I can meet the TARDIS somewhere else down the line and hitch on there, but he also rolls and Mickey completely stranded and doesn't seem to have a plan until Madame de Pompadour says you need to check out the fireplace again. Hmm. Well, I think I think the inference with that was obviously because the Doctor's taking the slow path. It's very easy for him to like pick up the TARDIS. At like, it's kind of like um, what you say. Moffat does play with like the the whole idea of time. Like, yes, he does abandon Rose and Mickey, but he could just show up like a couple of seconds later in the TARDIS, a little bit older, but he will will turn up. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. There is no indication of that. I mean, you're no. right. By the way, in terms of our head cannon can work that out. But yeah, yeah. that's not even that's not even hinted at in the actual episode. It's mm. actually almost explicitly stated that well, I'm stuck here now. Even if he's got plans, he's got thought thinking of another way out himself, and maybe he is. That's definitely something as a fan you can uh, a conclusion you can reach. But that's a conclusion we reach because of our fandom, not because of what's in the episode. No, that's fair. Um, but you're, I mean, you know, especially um, the parallels between like the tenth Doctor and Renette and eleventh uh, Doctor and Amy. Um, I actually didn't consider that now, um, but it's it's still like a really like beautifully written episode. Um, you know, the the one bit that always stands out to me is when the Doctor arrives in Versailles for the last time and it's too late. Like Renette's already passed on, and the King like hands him. Uh, uh, last letter to the doctor, and he says, "You know, what does it say?" And the doctor just pockets it and he goes, "Yeah, okay, fair enough." <laughs> yeah, basically, basically, yeah. None, basically, none of your fucking business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> um, and it, I mean, it is un- even though unlike the doctor and Amy relationship, this relationship is always, um, and this was maybe more hinted at that this was more than just a type a, a close friendship bond. Mm. Like she was. She was, uh, Renette was the other woman to the French king, and the doctor yeah. was the other man to, um, other man to Renette. Mm-hmm. There's that, that, that very just close face off where he comes through on the, um, he comes through on the horse through the window, the, the mirror, sorry, and, yeah. and she says, this is my love, the king of France, and he goes, yeah, well, I'm a lord of time. And he just gives him, <laughs> he just gives him a look, he just gives him a look. Yeah. And then they move on, they move on to, like, the actual plot of the plot that needs to be resolved. Mm-hmm. But but there is a yeah I don't like <laughs> in my room. yeah and um, it's inferred in mm. terms of the bond it's, it's inferred that she actually knows his real name mm. that's a trope that we see again another trope we see again is yes oh yeah <laughs> it's the horse on a horse on a spaceship so an animal somewhere it shouldn't be, which is a trope that comes through a lot when he takes over. Mm-hmm. I mean, dinos- dinosaurs on a spaceship is a T-Rex in what's centre of London in deep breath. Yeah, yeah. Crete, a shark somewhere, I forget where the shark is, but a shark above ground in A Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a trope he goes back to a lot. Yes. So an animal somewhere it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it, also his, uh, his affinity for body horror is kind of taken to its most extreme principle mm. here. Um, you know, I think that the sight of, you know, a, a beating heart kind of, 
in, in wired up to the fucking ship, I think will stay with me for a while. Yeah. Also, shout out to this episode yeah. for having a jump scare that gets me every fucking time. With the clockwork every, Yes, every time. <laughs> every, I've seen this episode uh, half a dozen times easily. And I know it's coming, but it gets me every time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, shout out for that one, I guess. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> also, he also left the clockwork uh, droids alone for a long time compared to his other creation. They yeah, don't, yeah. They don't come back until deep breath. Yeah, deep breathing. Capaldi. Mm-hmm. So that's shot a bit of discipline. It's a shame that the other creation, the uh, angels, didn't get the same treatment. Well, mm. more about those in a moment. <laughs> well, I was going to say, speaking of the angels, <laughs> shall we move on to Blink? Yeah, they've got my phone box. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. What I, I kind of struggle to say, what can you say about Blink that hasn't been said before? Um, yeah. Because it's fucking great. <laughs> I, I, I've, got, I've got something, and it's actually a negative. Oh, right. go on then. Uh, um, uh, the Billy Shipton character, the police oh. officer. Well, the worst character. One of, no, no, one of the worst Caribbean accents I've ever. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> that was yeah, Caribbean yeah. accent. This, yeah. Worst Caribbean accent this side of Kendra and Buffy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Where from the Caribbean he's meant to be from? I'm guessing Trinidad, but I don't think that was deliberate. Um, I'm the guy who—it's uh, not a shot of the guy himself. He shouldn't have been asked to do that. But the actor that plays him, like Michael Obiora, like his, his his family aren't even from the Caribbean. His family are from Nigeria, mm. and it was just like, oh, it's a black guy. It's fine. Why is he Caribbean? There's no need for him to be Caribbean. He's a English know. police officer. Yeah. yeah um, um, can I just get, just reveal a bit of in you know behind the curtain here? My mate was a boom mic operator on that episode, and apparently this decision was made late in the day to do the do Caribbean, <laughs> and no, no one is quite clear why <laughs> it happened. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm not actually got um going at Moffat for this because I suspect this wasn't his call. Mm. No, it wasn't. It was, nothing to do. it was made it was as far as I'm aware, it was a decision made on set. So yeah, he I had mean, nothing to do with that. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not blaming blaming him. It was just odd. It was it's very much like Don Cheadle in Ocean's Eleven where it's like, why does this guy have to be from a Cockney? There's no need for him in the plot. And you're just taking an actor who can't do a Cockney accent and making him look stupid. Because just make my club you're a, where he likes make him the guys from England just make him yeah. English, yeah, and yeah. You can do everything. Do everything else the same. You don't need to change anything. It makes no. It just makes no sense, and it's and it's not. Yeah, not Moffat's fault. Not Moffat's fault. Um, Although the treatment of that character is, it's just like we're just gonna let you. Uh, even though the Doctor and um, Martha mm-hmm. back in that time, we're like we're just gonna let you uh, live out, uh, so we can be rescued. Um, <laughs> Yeah, welcome to Doctor Who, though. Welcome to Doctor Who. Across the board. What's the alternative? And you need what happens to Billy and to Kathy to happen to them because you're creating a new villain. You have to make these... You basically... You have to get the villains over. Mm -hmm. How do you get any villain over? You've got to make them do horrible things. Yeah. Like, you can't just... You have to show and not tell. Um, You have to see Hannibal Lecter actually go at someone for him or Anton Chigurh. Or yeah. have to actually it's see the them point being... that he's teleported back to the same time period as the doctor, and the doctor's like, "I normally give you a lift home, but I'm not going to." Fixed point, fixed point in time. That would yeah. be my mm-hmm. that be my explanation for, and that's that's I'm very. Not, yeah, start, start picking plot holes in. There. <laughs> in no, it, I mean, yeah, I didn't have. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, it's harsh for the characters, but it's like they're that's their purpose. Yeah, that's why. And especially when you've got like such a sort of an esoteric method of killing that the angels do, it's like basically they send them back in time, and they have to just like live out the rest of their lives so they can feed off it. I mean, that's it. I mean, on paper. It's fascinating, but it's you have to like then transfer that into a visual medium. So yeah, I mean, Shipton and Kathy d- do get very much get the short end of the stick here, but you've got to sort of bring that idea across of this is how the angels work. This is what they do to you. This is why they have to be stopped. And this is why you should be scared of them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's not just getting the angels over. It's getting Sally's character over as well. Because you mm-hmm. see the effects that it has. I mean, she only not believe for like five minutes. But you see the effect that it has on her. Yeah. On both occasions. So yeah, yeah, you yeah. understand You understand why she will follow her curiosity. And end up, and end up taking the angels on. Because of what they've done to... A, I guess a potential so someone that would have been a fun drink or maybe a fun one night stand at least and her best friend hmm. so um, it's it's very necessary what happens to them yeah I mean I, I do still like the bit um, when she's in the graveyard and she finds oh, sorry excuse me that's, that's the kind of thing that would happen in an episode of Doctor Who yeah <laughs> particularly a Moffat one <laughs> Sorry about Mike, that. Mike, Mike's getting a call that the, the world is coming to an end in five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> but, he, but he just needs to press two buttons on his phone, and that'll fix everything. Yeah. Are you listening to my call, Shane? How are you doing that? <laughs> um, it's, it's a Moffat episode of Doctor Who. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, we'll find out in about forty-five minutes. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah. So but, the part where um, Sally finds her friend's grave. And she looks at the data and she says, you said, yeah. you said you were 18, you cheeky cow. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favourite. I mean, because that's sort of the, the not sitcom, I mean, I don't want to sort of put, sort of say, oh yeah, they were that sitcom writing, but that kind of ear for just sort of <laughs> how mates would be, even, yeah. you know, like, standing at your best mate's grave. <laughs> yeah, like heartedness in the face of tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, even the joke early on when obviously um, Sally's gone to the old ha- well, West of Dremlin, she's gone to the old house right at the beginning mm-hmm. and then goes to Kathy's at like what, 1 a.m. And she does. Like, for- how did she get in? Because I don't think they're flatmates. I think they live in separate places because she says um, got the idea. Yeah. yeah, she must have. Like, maybe she got spooky. Um, but yeah, she comes around and she doesn't wake her up. She just goes into the kitchen and calls her on her phone and says, I'm making you a coffee. That <laughs> almost that yeah. shorthand way of communicating where. Normally, in generic writing, the character you'd see the character come into the house, you'd see them look distressed or dismayed, you'd mm-hmm. see them wander into the bedroom, you then get a shot of Kathy, you then have Sally softly wake her up and, in a very serious tone of voice, say, I've just come from this place and I had a rock thrown, you know, all of that. But mm. there's, there's none of that because these, there is that informal communication that you would have between two people who know each other really mm. well, where I am not even coming. Into your room. I'm just going to wake you up, by f- and I'm already boiling the kettle. So it's like, so you have to get up. <laughs> yeah, um, but again, this is this is I think really where Moffat brings in the timey wiminess of Doctor uh, Who, yeah. especially well, when even you've says got, it. <laughs> yeah, um, especially with the DVD Easter eggs, mm-hmm. um, which I always thought was like a brilliant sort of little conceit. And it's still there on like the the third series box set. If, when you know where to look, um, it's just David Tennant 
like talking to camera, just reciting his his part of the script. And it's still a great moment when they're finally in the house. It's, you know, just before like the final showdown with the angels. And, you know, they're, they're doing the back and forth as usual. And the doctor goes, and that's it. I don't know what happened, but you just think, oh, shit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, I was just thinking, I think as well, just a thought that's come to me is it was kind of, uh, Moffat was sort of involved with fandom sort of long before mm-hmm. uh, who came back. And I think that it's quite interesting that he chose this sort of burgeoning internet culture of picking shows apart. I mean, because obviously this was still 2007. Mm-hmm. You're still, I mean, obviously message balls existed yeah, way yeah, before yeah. this their Gallifrey base was had existed long before this as well but that kind of that the internet culture there was very prevalent of dissecting tv shows in minute detail mm-hmm. him sort of using that idea to people who are obsessing about these messages on the dvds yeah but it makes it like it makes sense because Moffat knows I think Moffat knows that had he not been writing the show he'd be one of those people he'd yeah. be Larry yeah. he'd be Larry if he wasn't if he wasn't writing a character like Larry, he would be a character like Larry. Um, and, um, yeah, and he, he knows that. I mean, it's it does brilliantly use fandom. Mm. And particularly fandom in a contemporary way. Um, as well as, as well as maybe anything. I mean, as well as anything since... Th- this is the kind of thing you, you'd have had in Galaxy Quest if Galaxy Quest had been made in this era. Mm. In, that, in that same way. Um, and what I mean, one thing that I've mentioned the production values early from Doctor Dance's Empty Child, but the editing in this is absolutely pivotal in terms of making it work. Yeah. This mm-hmm. episode, as well written as it is, and it's tremendously written, can still go wrong in a lot of ways mm-hmm. if people behind it. And um, Jamie McCombs, the guy who is credited as editor, he deserves like almost as much of the credit because you watch, go back and watch the episode when we first see the angels do their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and watch how it's cut. And watch how it's edited together. Watch how swift it is. Watch where the camera shots are. Mm. You need all of that for it to work. So, and how it's directed as well. Yeah, um, what I was saying is the, the it's directed cons- tremendously by um, um, Hetty McDonald. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. the conceit obviously with the angels that the genius of you know when you realise that well, why aren't the angels moving? No one can see them, and it's like, well, you can see them. <laughs> You you you're you're looking at them. You the audience. Yeah. That's why they're not moving. And then when you realise that, you go, oh. Yeah, I remember that absolutely. <laughs> petri- this episode absolutely petrifying my sister. <laughs> Interesting use of words, there, I suppose. Pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> and, and she's five years older than me, but I remember watching it going. You have to watch this episode, but make sure you watch it with the lights on, knowing what she's like. <laughs> <laughs> but it's again horror based. Um, like you said, with normal something taking something that's so regular as statues and turning it into the most terrifying villains mm-hmm. that Doctor Who's had since the reboot, arguably in this one episode, anyway. Before you know, the statue will literally well, turn into one. Well, I, I would argue, sort of most terrifying villains. Period. I mean, there's sort of none. There's not really anything that's coming close to touching them in Doctor Who canon in terms of just pure scariness. Hmm. Um, and, and nothing in terms that's been created post reboot. No, it's kind of the the great. Re- the, the great creation of the new series by sort of hands down by far and, i mean you'll say it's showing you're right about the editing i mean i think one of my favorite shots of the revived series is the angels shaking the tardis and the lights going mm. on and off 
it's just brilliant. Yeah, and uh, arguably one of the greatest horror villains, just generally in the in the, since two thousand. Yeah, it's definitely in like, films or anything. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of like the the ultimate example of Moffat taking the ordinary and making it terrifying. Because look around you. I mean, how often do you see statues when you? out and about just wandering (laughs) especially when you get that like closing bit of like the doctor like repeating his warning to sell you blink that's how the episode ends yeah Yeah. a shot of real life real life genuine statues yeah all around the country um to deliberately try to make it feel as real as possible and the key thing the key thing isn't even the monsters Mm. the real conceit which i think has given made them endure so long and made them resonate so much is that unlike many monsters many monsters and not even a doctor who just super villains is that they're super villains there's nothing you can do to stop them no. you are powerless if they're going to if they're going to do what they want to do however this is a villain that you can stop yeah. that anyone can stop um and can stop in a very very simple way it doesn't matter who you are but oh. it does depend on you doing one very specific thing and if the, and it leaves you with no margin for error the margin mm. of error being not looking or blinking the second you ha- the second you um, drift into that margin of error, you're fucked. Yeah. And I would point out, as someone that works in an opticians, the moment you tell someone not to blink, all they do is blink. So <laughs> <laughs> they all be dead. <laughs> well, that's every. I mean, the amount of times I've had that actually with the doctor there, right? Saying, "Don't move that." I've never wanted to move that more in my entire life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the joke Moffat always makes is, why wouldn't they just take over? Haven't they taken over the world? And it's like, well, because there's bumblebees and moths and stuff, and all you need is a moth to look at them, and that starts them dead. Hmm. Um, it, it's such a smart, it's such a smart conceit, and it. I mean, the the one thing as well that brings this episode up is the quality of the acting. Yeah. Uh, Finlay Robertson, in particular, Kerry Mulligan, yeah, uh, who was at this point an unknown and hits an absolute home run with her performance she the show knows what it wants to be by this point so they've mm-hmm. got an actor that they've got an actor that fits what the the tone of the show needs i mean they've just got a really good actor but they've got an actor that fits the, t- the t- um what the tone of the show needs so they know the kind of performance they need to give to make it work there is no kind of the acting doesn't come off as really that corny where it did some of the particularly serious one that's um that's and it's down to casting. That's why casting is so important. And this will never happen because they can't afford her. But I would so love to see Kerry Mulligan play this role one more time, not for a whole series, but just like a Christmas special. Mm. And, yeah, and, that's, and, and that's and that's <laughs> and that sells it. Yeah, that sells it itself. She had just been on a BBC show, hasn't she? Uh, she's yeah, she. Yeah, yeah, she's doing a series, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I can't imagine they get her back. But even if it's just because you do feel there's more there if you wanted to explore it. Hmm. There's yeah, there is there is more there, and she works so well as a companion. Yeah. Um. So shall we move on? Because um, before we get to series four, there was a little uh, special uh, time crash in two thousand seven, where we have the fifth, the tenth Doctor meeting the fifth Doctor. Um. Again, kind of like Curse of Fatal Death. Um. It does like poke humor at itself. It is. It's a very loving sort of like poking. It's mostly because the Tenth Doctor takes the piss out of his earlier self, you know, the <laughs> celery on the jacket. It's just like, nah, not many people can wear a decorative vegetable. <laughs> well, it all, it's, all, it's not just taking the piss, it's also realising the similarities. Mm. 
yeah, particularly yeah. between these, particularly between these two doctors. Yeah. Um, the same way that some a lot of people say that Matt Smith is some ways the mirror image of Patrick Troughton. Yeah. Tennant some ways comes off as the mirror of Peter Davison. Mm-hmm. And now it's just given added weight, by, added weight by the fact that he goes on to be his father-in-law. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's I I don't know if I can actually watch that ever again. Just because it's like okay, hang on. <laughs> Um, but then we get to series four and Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. Here we go, making the mundane absolutely terrifying again. <laughs> yeah. It's time with shadows. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> Flesh-eating shadows. <laughs> <laughs> these um, are villains. I w- these are villains I would like to see come back. Hmm. Actually, there's too much there to not use them again. Yeah, the Vashti Narada. Um, I think really effective villain. I think. Um. And it, it, it's, again, like you say, it's kind of like the, way, the angels. It's the one thing you can't control. You can't stop light casting a shadow. So, you know, there is, like, very little to stop you. The, very little to stop them from getting you. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I do sometimes wonder if maybe he saw the X Files episode Soft Light before he made this, because uh, yeah. <laughs> it's quite similar. Although it is only one. It is old poor old just Tony Shalhoub has a killer shadow hmm. it's and it you know it's <laughs> but oh, when you... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> monk <laughs> yeah. all i recognize him for now yeah. <laughs> um but this is kind of where like the mystery woman um trope of uh, Stephen moffat's time on doctor who begins because we introduced of course to alex kingston as professor of a song the ultimate playing around with time yeah character well, I say, I mean, it's it's not really important, so we'll just move on, shall we? <laughs> no, <Yeah>. not really. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, mean, I remember watching this at the time and thinking, well, we'll never, we'll never we'll have to worry about that again because we won't be back. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Emma! You're an idiot. Again, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, another trope for Finns to come with him introducing a long-running character in a different way, like with uh, Clara. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it, and it it kind of has its cake and eat in terms of breaking because it almost breaks a basic screenwriting rule, which is you wouldn't create a new and important character in a long run show only to kill them immediately, Mm. which is what he does. Oh yeah. Um, He, well, doesn't kill in a manner of speaking. She is a a consciousness of herself remains, remains existent. But um, you meet this character who seems so important and then it's like, yeah, and she's done. Obviously, there is more. We know there's more to her because wibbly wobbly. Um, and she's walking around with a big plot book. Yeah, quite literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, a common theme actually in this, if you look at, and Blink is the outlier. And Blink, in many ways, is a bit of an anomaly episode because I don't think that was originally the plan. It was a case of Moffat didn't have time to do something else. So it was like he he got yeah. sad. He actually he... got the he got he got. Red shirt. He got the episode that no one wants, which is the mm. Doctor Light. Right, yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, I remember he was supposed to be doing a two-parter, um, but something came up and he couldn't do it, so he elected to do the Doctor Light, and that's how Helen Rayner got to do right. Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks, and sadly we know how that turned out. Um, but and yeah, yeah, it ba- and it was based on something that he'd kind of written already. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was I- for an annual, I think. Doctor Who annual called What I Did in My Holidays by Sally Sparrow, oh. aged 
ten or age nine, something like yeah, age nine yeah, and, and half he, or something, yeah. Yeah, and, and he used that as the building blocks for what became Blink. So that was that mm. was an outlier and almost we I mean, not rushed, but a backup episode. Yeah, that was not like that was not the plan. Blink was not the plan. Mm. It ended up being it ended up being a really good plan B. But in if you look at all these other episodes we've listed, the common theme that runs through them all is well, two common themes, and one less spoken of is tech intervening to do mm-hmm. its job to often repair and heal and sometimes save humans but inadvertently overreaching because it never gets the consent of the people that it's, yeah. it's trying to help mm-hmm. so you have a uh what a vessel with nanogenes trying to heal yeah and it inadvertently turns everyone to gas mask monsters but mm-hmm. it's only doing what it's meant to it's actually meant yeah. to, it's actually trying to heal people and the girl in the fireplace you have repair droids trying to repair a ship that's broken Mm-hmm. And it's which makes sense. Yeah. That's like that's that's good and in theory, but it doesn't. Again, it, there was no rule stated that we couldn't use the crew. It never got the consent of uh, of the crew to use their body parts to do it. Yeah. And in this, you have a again an an AI an AI being in mm-hmm. Cal trying to um, save people from the Bashanarada, but without their consent, so it draws them into its own kind of computerized. Uh, computerized world, yeah, and it gives you the uh, it gives you the impression they're all dead, yeah. But so this, it, all, yeah. all the time, it's tech trying to do what you think tech should do, and mm-hmm. it, this it doesn't feel as resonant maybe back then, but it definitely feels a lot more resonant now. Yeah, where it's a case of always the threat of AI, and that's probably you know in terms of AI destroying humans, it won't be like Skynet. It will be it'll no. be something more like this of well, we, we were just trying to fix stuff. And yeah. we we didn't realize that you didn't need our help. Or you yeah, didn't want the, the sort of literal mindedness of computers. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I'm going to do it. You know, it's it doesn't like really like take into effect like what humans think is like right or things like empathy. It's just like this is my task. Here's how I'm going to do it. And as far yeah, as it's, it knows, yeah. it's doing nothing wrong. It was like years ago. I had an iTunes update. Um, oh yeah. And the problem was is that the computer drives weren't aligned with the update, so I basically couldn't sync my iPod anymore. Mm. Now, the, the computer didn't know that, and I yeah. never had that option to, like, by the way, if you do this update, you need, like, these drives mm-hmm. or whatever. Or if, or if that option was there, I didn't see it. So it's doing something that you think is a good thing, but it's actually ruined. It means I can't um, sync my iPod. I have to buy a new fucking computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I mean that's a much lower level problem compared to what happens oh, in these episodes, yeah. but but, it, but that's... the points the point remains. It's just computers just like being like doing what they're supposed to, but it just mucks up everything up without re- like realizing or even caring. You know what I mean? Yeah, because that's the pl- that's the plot of every episode. Hmm. That's and but the, what Moffat Moffat's skill is in keeping that concealed until the end or the final yeah. five minutes. That's his skill. The episode itself is always very. His episodes are very simple in terms of the plots, hmm. but it's but because he has such a wide knowledge of Doctor Who and a, a great a skill to sometimes parody and lampoon the tropes of the thing he exists in. When he throws that all in, that's you get up to like you know forty five minutes to an hour of every um, each episode. Mm-hmm. But the episode, if the plot itself is probably about fifteen minutes worth of screen time. A, a, a tech thing trying to yeah. trying to heal. That's the yeah. that's the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just the complications. Everything else, like yeah, the, along the way. Yeah, that's like 
Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark is not about Indiana Jones. He just happened <laughs> to be there. Raiders, Raiders, Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark is about these power-hungry people who open an ark and get fried to death. That's the, that's the story. <laughs> Reads in the films as long yeah. as it is because you get Indiana Jones getting in the way all the time. Yeah. Same way the, the Doctor just getting in the way all the time, and that's your that's how you stretch your episode out. Hmm. But that's not actually the story. Yeah. And the, obviously the thing of the other trope being that as you mentioned, he takes things that seem benign and makes them malignant. So yeah, clocks, statues, shadows, mm-hmm. a child, gas masks. Um, which I always think the inference is that danger is basically everywhere and that you're never safe. That's the thing about, not so much maybe when he took over the showrunner, but mm. when he's doing his one-offs, like Emma said, you always look forward to the Moffat episode. And it is because you're always in a state of like anxiety and the nerves are jangling when you watch his episode. Yeah. Because you never feel safe. Hmm. And you never feel comf- comfortable, and there's nothing, and you never think, "Oh, I know where this is going." Yeah, you never for a second feel at ease, which is by design. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that was unlike. I mean, there were a few other episodes that did that. Um, like Midnight Springs to mind immediately, but <laughs> but yeah, but generally speaking, you're never at ease mm-hmm. at all because you really don't feel comfortable or feel. Um, in a groove because you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, that's um, I mean, that was the skill of of these all these one-offs. Hmm. And um, I also have to credit Silence in the Library for having one of the most cacophonic um, cliffhangers of Doctor Who history. Um, you've got like the who turned out the lights constantly, and then Donna Noble has left the library. Donna Noble's just like, yeah. oh, Jesus Christ!" <laughs> <laughs> it, like, like really puts you on edge. Like, fuck, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's meant to be discordant, like it's meant mm. to do that to you. But I mean, again, just iconic moments that the Donald Donna Noble has left the library. I mean, mm. that is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, yeah. But I mean, it's uh, when you watch Moff episodes like that, you just not even necessarily just the two parters, but also about usually about twenty-seven minutes into his his so his uh, <laughs> uh, just normal stories, you're thinking, how the hell are they getting out of this? Yeah. You know, and that was one of the the ultimate. How the hell is he going to get back from this point? Um, ones and yeah, uh, pulls it off with a plum. And I think that when I think it wasn't too long after these went out that it was sort of revealed that he was going to be show running. Mm. Um, and uh, Doctor Who Nation rejoiced. Yeah, as as far as memory can serve, serves me. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, why weren't you on the back of these episodes? Mm. <laughs> yeah and um that i'm afraid is a podcast for another time mm. yes yeah, so um so you, you're, cliffhangers. <laughs> you're about to say you're, you're doing your own ending on a ending on a cliffhanger yeah. tune in next week <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um thanks for joining us shane and jonathan so okay. thank you yeah and um if you've got any thoughts about Stephen moffat and his pre-show on days let us know you can email us at greatestshow at simplysyndicated.com. You can tweet us at greatestshowpod. Or you can visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. Uh, please do check out our many sister shows on the network. And as always, we welcome your support. The best way you can help us out is by signing up to Simply Everything. A monthly fee of just £6 gives you access to ad-free versions of current shows like ours, a library of podcasts from the network's archives, and shows that are exclusive to the service. We also have a merchandise store that offers apparel and accessories to both Europe and America. We have our Patreon, and you can donate to the network through PayPal, links to which are both on the bottom of the website. So with that being said, thank you very much, Emma. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Shane. Thank Thank you. you.
And until next time, take care and bye-bye.